Hey, I'm Kyle Oki. And I'm Jason Hansen. And you are listening to the Agronomous Happy Hour podcast. Rock and roll. That's why they drink vodka over there. You're better off spraying the vodka on those last words. <laughs> <laughs> That's beer. <laughs> Welcome back, everybody. You are listening to the Agronomist Happy Hour. And yet again, I think we've got another great one in store. We are going back to northeastern Iowa, and we're going to be talking retail agronomy with a retail agronomist. And this is going to be a lot of fun. Uh, uh, we've been sharing some conversation before we hit record, just sharing uh, experiences from the past and kind of bringing up some fun stories. So, We'll uh, get to introducing her in just a minute, but uh, weather has taken a turn and I think spring's going to come a little slower, a little wetter, a little cooler than it has in the past. And so that's uh, not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, that's just uh, that's just the way things go. And now we got time, we got time to, to plan, we got time to make sure we're doing things that we should be doing. Uh, you know, maybe we're we're switching our plans saying, Hey, I need to do a seed treatment. Now I need to, you know, I can't get the particular formulation of 240. I want whatever it is, make plans. So it's a good time to sit back and do that. And there's no better way to make sure you're organizing your plans. If you're a consultant or the farmer, unless you're using a tool like farm QA. So they do make digital tools for agronomy and that farm QA tool is so handy. If that's just keeping records on, you know, where you're going to find weeds in a field, what you put down for fertility, when you put it down, what that weather was like when you put that down to, you know, what you applied for chemistry. So there's a lot of cool things that that tool does to keep track and keep record. And where the real power comes from is the year over year stuff. So once you're keeping record, looking back to see what you did the year before, when you did it, how you did it, what the weather was like, there's a lot of great information that's going to come from that. I just used it today. I sat down and I have a new client. And uh, he gave me his uh, farm maps. They're in this binder here that no one can that's listening can see, but you guys can. <laughs> and uh, he just gave me his uh, maps. And uh, one of the nice features is I can go into controller on Farm QA and pull up the county. And if it's 162.60, I can find where I need to go. So even though that was that was really slick. So I got his whole farm is entered in. We're ready to rock and roll for the spring. He gave me his crops that he was, we're planning to put in there, or he is, and I can adjust them if it changes. But there we are. It's all good. So, so something cool new new sponsor to the podcast related to mapping is that there are types of maps that you can put in to Farm QA and keep as record. Say the precision agriculture stuff. So let's say you put in a zone map or a variable rate map. Maybe it's a seeding map. Maybe it's a nitrogen map. Whatever it could be, you're putting in some kind of prescription. So there's lots of prescription services out there. There's lots of softwares. We have some friends on a previous podcast that you've listened to from GK Tech Inc. So our friends Darren, Kelly, and Sarah, and and the whole crew that works there uh, represent an absolutely robust precision agriculture tool. So if that's something where you want to build multiple year overlay imagery to try to really dial in on a map, maybe you have a process. 
to look at, you know, I want to look at elevation overlaid with various information overlaid with imagery. You can start to make a model. You can do that in GK. There's a lot of really cool stuff they can do. And that's what I spent some time with earlier today during my blizzard is starting to get some mapping done, starting to make some zone maps so they can do some spring soil sampling, you know, when it eventually thaws out. That's how my, that's how my deal too. I'll be using them this uh, coming fall and I just have to spend some time in April, maybe early May to get used to their stuff. They have great stuff. It is, uh, as they say, a very complicated yet extremely robust platform. <laughs> <laughs> and I imagine our guest here probably does a little bit of everything, including right. Precision Ag. And so without further ado, Gina, I think we need to have you introduced. So we have Gina Panuska mm-hmm. with us, hailing all the way from somewhere in northeastern Iowa. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're just excited uh We've known you here for a little while. Long-time listener to the podcast. Definitely not first-time conversationalist with us. And we thought, hey, it's about time that we get on the podcast and talk. So, you know, in our typical happy hour fashion, Gina, why don't you introduce yourself? uh, Give us a little bit of background, who you are, where you're at. and We'll just uh, take it from there. All right. Well, uh, first off, I just want to thank you for having me. Um, Like I say, long-time listener, kind of first-time caller, I guess you could say. But... (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, I found your podcast early on, probably right from the beginning. I got sick listening to the radio driving around, so I discovered what podcasts were. So I searched agronomy in the search bar on Apple Podcasts, and I think yours was one of the only ones and the first one that came up. So um, I've learned a lot from it. Uh, You think you know a lot about agronomy, and then you hear what somebody across the country is doing and realize that I live in a really small part of the world compared to what's (laughs) going on everywhere else. So um, thank you guys for doing it. And thanks again for having me. So, um, so like you said, my name is Gina Panuska and I'm a retail agronomist in Northeast Iowa. Um, I come from a farm background, so I grew up near the small town of Brandon, which fun fact is home of Iowa's largest frying pan. So, um, grew up on a farm there. Uh, my dad grows corn, soybeans, a little bit of alfalfa, pumpkins, and then runs a small scale livestock operation. So, um, I knew kind of early on I wanted to pursue a career in agriculture. So I attended college at Upper Iowa University in Fayette, Iowa, which second fun fact is I'm pretty sure the only town in Iowa with a college and not a high school. So pretty rural area there. Um, but I started off. As, <laughs> wait, wait, <laughs> yeah. say that one more time. The only, they have a college and not a high school. That's right. It's basically like a thousand people or something live in Fayette and the college doubles the town population. So yeah, there's a bar and a dollar general and that's all you need. (laughs) 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 So and an ice cream shop now. So that's pretty cool too. Ooh. (laughs) That's right. Um so yeah I uh, started out at Upper Iowa as an ag business major communications minor. So thought was I was going to be an ag journalist and write for like a magazine or something like that. So my first semester, um, I took mostly science courses, which I enjoyed. Second semester was communication stuff. And after my second writing class, I was like, eh, I don't learn how to do this anymore. So <laughs> I dropped the, <laughs> dropped the minor and picked up a second major in environmental science. So I um, graduated with those two degrees in 2014 and started a full-time thing for an ag retailer that I had done an internship with in college. So 
Um, starting out, my title was agronomy sales, but I was more of like a full-time intern. So kind of just doing all the background stuff, the soil sampling, tissue sampling, crop scouting, and everything on the computer that the agronomists want to do. So um, so I learned a lot during that time. And uh, then at, at that time period also, uh, drone or UAV was kind of a big buzzword in agriculture. So um, I've got a little bit of a background in aviation. And so my company was like, hey, can you figure this out for us? So long story short, I went through the process to get us our Section 333 exemption. And we became the first ag retailer in Iowa to be able to legally fly drones for commercial use. So that was a pretty big deal. Um, once that happened, things kind of literally took off, I guess you could say. <laughs> and I spent the entire, <laughs> entire next year. Unintended there, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I do what I can, but... Um, so yeah, I spent the entire next growing season flying drone pretty much every day that, that the, the weather allowed. So that was a pretty neat experience. I flew both a fixed wing and a quadcopter, um, and got pretty good at flying. And so throughout that whole time, like I enjoyed what I was doing, really wanted to get more involved working with people and not so much just things or the technology all the time. Um, so I was finally given a customer list which was made up of about five growers that actually did business with the co-op and then the rest of all prospects. So either people that used to work with us and stopped or that were just completely brand new to the company. Um, so I started blazing the gravel roads and door knocking, cold calling and doing all that fun stuff and went through a lot of rejection, but eventually like the ghosting and the no's started turning into callbacks and yeses. And so I was pretty successful in the end. Um, over the next three years, I uh, grew my business with current customers I had, and then I picked up a lot of new business. And um, so that was a really cool experience. And uh, then I was given the opportunity to make kind of sideways move. And so kind of what I'm most proud of, I guess, in my career is a lot of customers that I worked with at my first job actually followed me to my second job. So that quite a bit and just goes to show that relationships are a big part of agronomy and agriculture and what we do. So uh, people work with people and that relationship is important. So, um, so yeah, I've been at my current position now uh, at an agri retailer for uh, just about four years. Um, I work with about 60 growers, give or take. Um, I do crop advising, uh, sales in seed fertilizer and crop production products. And then I do a lot of the servicing that goes along with uh, with all that. So crop scouting, soil sampling, um, product delivery. And then for the eight years I've been in retail or, or retail, I've been running a seed treater as well, um, part of agronomy operations. So, um, so yeah, that's kind of my career in a nutshell, I guess. Uh, currently, um, yeah, I work in Northeast Iowa, primarily in Delaware, Clayton, Fayette, and Buchanan County. So kind of like Manchester, like a 60 mile radius, probably around Manchester is kind of my area, I guess you could say. So yeah, that's kind of where I'm at. Boy, there's, there's a lot of things in, in that <laughs> long introduction there. It was really good. Uh, that, um, is a, that is a buffet. Right that, there, yes. Right? Yeah. I'm like, there, there's so many things and I'm, and I'm hoping that both Jason and I can just try to stay organized in our heads enough <laughs> to, to keep asking you about some of these. So I'm curious. Um, er, it sounded like early on was kind of your drone side of it that you spent a lot with so so explain when you were flying almost every day for a season you know what was that drone imagery being used for what was the goal uh yeah so um so this was in like 2000 
15, probably that growing season. So like at the time, kind of just everybody was talking about drones and UAVs, just wanting to use them for agriculture, but nobody really knew what to do with it. I don't think at that time. So we were kind of exploring that as well, I guess. Like, so the a SenseFlight EB was our fixed wing drone. And so that had a near infrared camera on it. So it was all controlled by the computer. You'd send it off and it would map the fly back and forth and map the field with um, near infrared photography. And then you would make NVI maps out of that. So it it's kind of like it did what the satellite imagery does really well today. Um, the big difference was at that time you could fly whenever you wanted to, where like the satellites were only going over maybe once a week or every mm-hmm. couple of weeks at that time. And so this was more targeted, to like when you wanted that imagery or when you wanted to be out there. So, I mean, you could see like your stressed areas or um, just uh, where there wasn't as much biomass out in the field. And then you could take that imagery, put it into your cell phone or your iPad and then walk to that spot that was geo-referenced and see what was going on um, with the, quadcopter we had that just had a gopro on it so you're taking like either videos or just red green blue imagery so that was more useful i would say for like if we like if we storm or wind which we typically have these days i mean you could take it on just kind of get an overview of the field like what's it look like what can i expect going to harvest and things like that so it was kind of like, say, we were kind of pioneering things as well. Like we didn't really know what we were going to get out of it or what what it was going to be. But um, but I think guys found it useful. And uh, yeah, it was definitely, um, definitely a big learning experience, I guess, for everybody involved, both the farm and, and us as the retailer. Well, and that, that's why I ask, because uh, I think it, during that time frame, too, um, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but maybe you've seen the same thing where the drone thing got really exciting and everyone jumped into it. And then now it's kind of gone back down and it, not the drones have crashed, but <laughs> yeah, they well, serve, now, serve maybe a different purpose. Yeah. Right. I was supposed to do all this stuff. It was just, I mean, it was a buzz. And I mean, the biggest, like the toughest part is like the United States is way far behind like other countries as far as that technology goes. So like our we're limited to fly at 400 feet and with like that EB with the near infrared photography. So when you set up your flight plan, it makes like the path of where the plane is going to fly. But at 400 feet, you're not getting very much area in that picture where as in like China and over in Europe stuff, they can fly at a thousand feet. So our data files at 400 feet are like, and I don't exact numbers, but they're way bigger than they are if you're flying higher because you're getting more data in each picture. And so those maps are easier to make and they take less time. And well, essentially so, they're flying two and a half times as high. So they're probably getting two and a half times yeah. just for thinking about it in relative terms, two right. and a half times the, the swath that they're mm-hmm. covering. And so that's less megapixels, less, less right. data. Yeah. That so it just, right. So, I mean, that's a big, big problem we have here with the drone imagery is it's just, it's not as efficient as it could be because we're limited by the FAA, I guess. But, um, but yeah, when I, so I'd actually got my pilot's license, my private pilot license when I was in college, um, I took a GIS course and we learned a lot about aerial imagery and agriculture. And so I thought, well, it'd be cool to like 
take farmers up in an airplane and show them their fields and like do aerial crop tours and things like that. And then that's when drones came along and that kind of took the place of that idea, I guess. So, and now, now drones in my area are starting to be used for spraying. And so, yeah, it's just kind of forever changing. Well, and that's, I don't know, that's the thing that could be kind of exciting with drones is that, uh, sure. One singular drone for Mm -hmm. spraying that can do 40 acres an hour. Whoop-de-doo. You know, an airplane can do a lot of that, a lot more yeah. than I should say. And and then even a ground rig can do a lot more than that. But if mm-hmm. you can run, uh, I, what do they call a, is it a flock of drones or a pack or a hive or, yeah. <laughs> I don't know what they would call it, but I imagine you could probably run, well, I, I don't know what the number would be, but multiple in a, in synchrony and, mm-hmm. and get a lot of work done. Right. Well, actually like. Uh, I had a grower, um, they hired a drone last year to come in and spray parts of a field, uh, just a small, I don't know, probably acre area or something, but we're starting to get issues with wild cucumber or bird cucumber. Mm. So it's like, if you go drive a spray rig through last year, by the time that stuff emerged, everything was off label, like to go spray a whole field or to be out messing around with that so they just hired a drone to spray that one small area um plus if you go through that stuff you're just going to take everything down with the vines so um so yeah it seems like it's for something like that they're very useful and uh, a few guys are talking about using them for fungicide trying some stuff like that and so yeah it'll be interesting where it goes in the next couple of years right i don't i don't think it'll replace an airplane or a ground rig but like you said there's going to be special situations where That'll fit really well. Like I think uh, another place outside of production ag, but it's still related to agriculture, is uh, range and pasture. Mm-hmm. I, I think that has a huge fit. I, I think in the country that's really close to where I live. So I live right on the edge of the Badlands. And okay. and so there's a lot of cattle country as you go west and north of where I live where you'd have to do things by ATV. And even then, if you're trying to take care of noxious weeds... If you had a, you know, someone that kind of did some preseason scouting and geo reference and said, "Hey, here's where your patches of leafy spurge are, or wormwood, or wherever," and you can plug in your drone to go hunt that stuff down, and you could go with a prescription, I, I think there's a uh, there's some legitimate use there. Or even in the the northeast Iowa now, is that flat country or is that hilly country? <laughs> so it depends on where you're at. So, um, so I live uh, near Strawberry Point. So basically. If you go south of my house, it's all flat country. If you go like half a mile or three quarter mile north of my house, it turns into the driftless area. So, okay. um, so yeah, we, we take care of every territory you can imagine. Sure. Well, I could, I could say like the drone thing would really fit well in oblong fields, uh, weird corners where you got a lot of trees and stuff right. like that. Like it probably fit in extremely well in those mm-hmm. situations, something smaller, more agile, easy to move around and right and get those things done that maybe a traditional 110 foot boom or or even an airplane couldn't touch right well that's very true so i have a different question here so i wrote i wrote this is what i wrote down gina was uh you're, you're talking about some stuff uh before we actually got on and it it kind of goes this route and and you can give your your take on this was uh for somebody who is starting out in particularly sales, I uh, mentioned that it was like rejection mm-hmm. and people say no, and then it becomes a maybe, and then there's a callback and it leads to a loyal customer. 
So how, what, what, is, what advice do you give to say people that are just starting out in this business? What is the thing that you would relay your experience on that whole part of retail? That is, I, I was in it. It's, right. it's brutal. It's tough. <laughs> Cold calling is the hardest part. Oh my. Yes. <laughs> um, so yeah, basically, I mean, the biggest thing is, uh, I don't know. I mean, you really have to learn not to take things personally, I guess. Um, I mean, if a guy, if a guy has been working with another retailer forever, I mean, it's, it's very hard to get him to make a change or, I mean, especially like the first couple times you're out, there, but I mean, the biggest thing is just don't take stuff personally and then just don't give up, I guess, is the other thing. Um, a lot of guys, like, I think they say it takes five or six stops to, to get a sale eventually, but, um, and that's probably true in a lot of cases. I mean, you just gotta, you have to prove yourself and especially as a young person, I mean, that's tough when you step on a farm and just say you just graduated from college or something like that. Like, I mean, to that farmer, you don't know anything and they've been farming for years. I mean, what are you going to do for them? And so you just have to like prove yourself that this is what I can bring to the table. This is what I can help you out with. Or, um, I mean, you just got to listen to their needs and ask them the questions, let them do the talking. And, uh, I mean, eventually, um, if you stick with it, it, it very well could pay off, I guess. Um, and yeah, it's, I don't know. I've got all sorts of stories of things that have been like cold calling and I don't know. I mean, a time I went to a farm, was knocking on the guy's door and nobody was answering. And the farmer literally pulled in the driveway and was in his pickup. And so I waved and walked over to the truck and he looked right at me, just drove off and left again. And what? I was like, okay. <laughs> Didn't even acknowledge that you were standing there. No. And maybe didn't be, I guess, but I don't know. You just got to think like the best case scenario, <laughs> stuff like that and go back, try again time. And so, so the, I don't know. The question is, did you go back to that place? I did. And I actually had a pretty good uh, relationship with him after that. So <laughs> I bet he felt <laughs> awful for driving off on you. Well, he should. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's yeah, all sorts of things happen. But I, I think everybody should, you should sit down and sit uh, and talk to, I don't want to be sexist here, but you should listen to people that are female in that are agronomists and some of the stories that they have, because you would not believe some of the stuff that goes on because you don't experience it as a male. Right. Because I have a, a, a lot of people that are female in this business and I, I'll sit down with them. And I am shocked mm -hmm. it's to, yeah, some of the things. So the, the fact that you went back, I'm like, oh, no, I'm going to have to crack another beer for that one. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, I think your story is good, too, because what I heard was, hey, you know what? Yeah, everybody starts out at some point and you go do and you have to go out and it's about building relationships and it takes time. And companies and marketing departments, they don't. They're, they don't appreciate that time. Right. You know, mm -hmm. how many stops, how many calls, some of the stuff. All metrics. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> how many, how much of this stuff that, that you do happens after 6 PM in the evening, right? Right. You, you could be doing other things with your, your family, your kids, your husband, your friends, whatever, but you're, it's, that's how it is. Right. No, I was, I was, that was just one thing I, I picked up and I went through and, when you were you were talking, I'm like, okay, that's that's. So I was uh, want to 
pick up from people uh, uh, what they say because uh, I remember when I first started in the business, it was all cold calls. And I had been in an area that had high turnover before I got there. And it was just important to be seen, to be in the community and doing stuff and those type of things. And by the time uh, I was kind of ready to move on and do something else, they were like just warming up to me. Mm, right. <laughs> that is kind of how that goes, though. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, you just I didn't want to. My life had different circumstances. But, yeah, I was I was there for so many years. And it seems like the, the longer you're somewhere, the better the relationships get, the more connected you are to the community the more comfortable, not only you to customers, but customers back to you. And a lot of, a lot of good things happen from that. But uh, when you're starting out though, holy crap, that's, that's the hardest thing. And so I can't imagine it being a female and doing it too at the same time, cold (laughs) calling because you, yeah, like Jason said, there's just things that you'll experience that are so much different from, from any other guy that's going to go in there and do that. And I think about how hard it is just to cold call and, and especially play, people that haven't done business with who you represent mm-hmm. or who you work for, you go do that and they're like, oh, I've never worked there before or worked with anyone from there before. I've never bought anything. And mm-hmm. they're just like, oh, okay. You know, and they kind of give you the cold shoulder and <laughs> just like, hey, thanks for showing up, but see ya. <laughs> and it might take, it takes a lot of visits on some of those and just straight out getting ghosted and ignored and right. you get well, a phone I'm- number and they don't answer and. Right. Yeah. yeah it's, I don't know. I always question, well, do I go back or do I not go back? And it's, it's tough, but I don't know. I think, I think when you first, when you meet a guy, you can kind of, if you're good with people, you can kind of figure out like, is it worth your time to go back or not? And that's, that's the other thing. I mean, there's people out there where it's just plain not worth your time to go keep pestering them, I guess. But, um, but yeah, you, you just got to be able to, to read people too and know i guess what's appropriate or not and kind of i don't know see what happens but i i will say some of the best relationships i've made are from people that i was told you'll never do business at this place this <laughs> right. person not worth working with mm-hmm. and and you go and you you make acquaintance you find out hey i get along with this person pretty good mm-hmm. and and they were just they're slow to warm up and so there's other people that are like hey if i can't get instant success i'm out Right. You know, but a little yeah. persistence and all of a sudden, mm-hmm. you know, they were waiting on, you know, how, how dedicated are you? Right. You know, to working with that person and all of a sudden mm-hmm. things just, they change. Right. It gets better. It usually starts out, they'll give you a, well, I'll let you spread my hay or I'll let you do my soil sampling or it starts small and then it, it can grow from there. So it's, yeah. I don't know, worth. It's like hazing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Here's my hay ground full of yeah. gopher mounds and it's just absolutely yeah rough as hell mm-hmm. your custom applicator is going to chew your ass out for going why did you get this job for me as someone who was in the greek system i resent that <laughs> 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 but i would so the, if the three of us were working at a lo, a location or a business there would be people that i would say you know what i i'm making no headway and Jeannie, you could go there and just like kick ass <laughs> Right. That, that's how that's how it is, because I my personality and theirs don't match up. And I think a lot of times you have to realize that some of your sales territory or whatever, you, you can't like this is where you're going to be and this is who you're going to have. It doesn't work that way. Right. It's well, based on the person and the connections. And this is and this is to the point you brought earlier. And I think probably where Jason's going with this is it, it seems like as businesses get bigger, 
and you're more of your marketing department or more of your leadership, all they're seeing are numbers and they're trying to tie metrics to sales and they don't necessarily understand that there's always a relationship that's going on there mm-hmm. and, and that it's the relationship you you cultivated. That is really what's keeping the business there. But everyone's always got their own way of figuring out like, oh, yeah, this is uh, I'm just trying to think of the jargon for the you know, how do you categorize certain customers and mm-hmm. and say like, oh, well, no, these individuals, they just they want to see a, you know, you, you need to visit them. It's going to take four visits and then they're going to buy something. And then if you lay out this kind of program, they're going to, you know, they have this percent chance to buy again. And it's like, no, the reality is that you got along really good at this person versus the other guy. And you guys are clicking. You understand their farm. They understand how you're approaching them. And all of a sudden things work. Right. And and they want to continue working with you. And so that kind of leads to the whole, it's cool to hear you go from one retail place and you get the opportunity to go to essentially a much smaller place. I don't know if that was explained earlier, but that was off the air yeah, <laughs> for sure. But just to, it, it, you know, then, then you had a lot of your customers follow you. So that is something you should be proud of. I mean, that tells me who yeah. you are as a person, who you are as an agronomist, who you are as a sales, you know, that, that people want to do business with you, but explain that transition or, or why they came about. I'm sure there must be a little bit of a story to that. Um, yeah. So I guess uh, the first place I started working was kind of a, a larger retailer, which is fine. Um, I mean, good, good people there, but um, I, I was uh, contacted by um, the gentleman I work for now and they had a salesman leaving to work for a seed company. And so he's like, Hey, we're looking for an agronomist. Uh, would you be interested? And so I was like, yeah, well, let's talk. And so um, I went and had kind of a little interview and decided um, was a three location cooperative so just a lot lot smaller like a true cooperative feel to it and so I just thought well it looks like a good fit for me so let's do it and so yeah I made that transition I worked at my first of about four years and then I'll have been here about four years so um yeah just a little different I mean I'm doing the exact same job just a, a lot different culture I guess you could say so um so yeah it's been pretty enjoyable <laughs> the the key thing I hear in that move is though is that somebody wanted you mm-hmm. and because well, of your culture. accolades or your reputation or whatever it is, they seeked out you. And, yep. and that's, that's an important thing as an employee. You, know, you have to want to be wanted too. And so then, then you have someone seek you out. It's, it's, it's kind of hard to say no to some of that. And then of course, if they pay you better than, it definitely, def, definitely doesn't hurt the transition. <laughs> yeah. No, it's been, it's a nice area and a good community and just good, good people. And, we're, we're a company that's really known for our service. And so that's, that's really important too, as a, a sales uh, person, I guess, is to have faith and like trust your applicators are going to go spray the right field or like they've, they probably have at least 30 to 40 years experience combined within all our applicators. So, I mean, that's pretty unheard of these days. So, um, so yeah, that, that's really important as well to just have good people to back up what you're selling. How is that to come into a business that's got people that have been there for that long? You know, was, you know. <laughs> well, so I mean, like it was a kind of a weird deal because I mean, like before I would like my fertilizer maps or whatever, like a job to be sprayed or bred. And then, I mean, it might be three or four days and I'd have to say like, Hey, did this taken care of? Have we been there yet? Where are we at? And just, you didn't know when stuff got done because we were covering 
our location was uh, spraying for like three or other locations. So oh. you just didn't know exactly where you were in the queue, basically. And so I think the first job I turned in here, uh, a couple days later after I turned it in, I was like, hey, did that get, did we spread that yet? Or what are we doing? And oh, yeah, we spread it like the day you get it to me. And so I was <laughs> like, huh, that's how that works. And it was just <laughs> kind, of a, kind of a, yeah, just a shocker. I didn't Different. know. It can yeah. be that way. So, um, so yeah, it's uh, just a, a really nicely run ship, I guess you could say. Um, everyone worked well together and knows where the fields are and what they're doing. And um, yeah, that's really important. So, so speaking of that, where is your? So we've been, we've incurred a blizzard in North Dakota, but in Northeast Iowa, where where is your spring at for listeners? Just kind of what's uh, what's what's happening in your part of the world. Uh, so today is April 14th. So on, uh, let's see, it would have been like the 11th, um, we started anhydrous. So, uh, we had, I don't know, probably five, probably like eight or nine bars. And then I guess across our territory, um, that we were feeding for Monday, Tuesday, then Wednesday we got some rain. So we've just had a little bit of field work, a lot of box manures gone out. Um, like I say quite a bit of ammonia. Um, not much for spring tillages happened yet. Um, today, a few guys started running again with, uh, anhydrous. We had a lot of wind today, so it kind of dragged things out on the top a little bit. And so, yeah, some guys were starting to run, but I have heard that there's some seed in the ground in places, but nobody that I work with. So I guess I can't say much about that, but, uh, and then we've been, we started seed breeding on, um, April 8th, I think we just tried out the treater and then we got it going this week. So, um, so yeah, kind of, I wouldn't say we're behind, but we're not where we were last year at this time. So that's, I think that's a common theme, right? Everybody's, uh, right, it's not last seeing year. It everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. So when you say treater, is that, is that beans, soybeans? Yeah. Yep. So we treat, um, many bulk soybeans at our location and, uh, we have a KSI fully automated treater. So essentially we unload the mini bulk into a hopper, um, run that through the treater and then everything's programmed with a computer to put on, um, we have three pumps on our treater so we can do, uh, inoculant, uh, or something like that. And then your red fungicide and sex treatment. So, um, so yeah, so far, I think we're about a third of the way done of all the units we have to treat. So hopefully a couple more days and we'll out licked, but yeah. So, so how big of a job is that if it's all mini bulk? I mean, are you, are you just unloading one mini bulk bag at a time and then mm -hmm. running with that same bulk bag to the unload right. auger or the unload there and yeah. loading it back? So, um, so it, we can do treating with two people. Uh, you can do it by yourself, but it just takes a really long time. So it's, it's best with two to three people. But, um, so we have like a big hopper that you dump the mini bulk into, and then that goes up a conveyor into the scale. And so then scale gets the weight on it and then it um, feeds it treater. Uh, everything's calibrated based on density. So it, the calibration thing is awesome how, how that all works. Um, so then, yeah, once it gets through the treater, it goes through the drum and then up another conveyor into like this big funnel thing. And then we take the original bag that the beans were in and then park that underneath the funnel and refill it, basically. So I think without any interruptions, I mean, we can do probably 
Oh, it's probably takes like eight minutes or something to run a bag through, I would say, if we just go. So, I mean, we can, I think this morning we did 15, 15 mini bulks in like a couple hours or something like that, maybe two and a half hours. So, I mean, not the fastest process, but it's not, we, we've got the system down. So we're fairly yeah. efficient. I don't know. I, I have an appreciation for what you're doing because that's a lot of extra work versus I think what mm-hmm. every, every place is different, I guess, on how they're handling mini bulk. But, uh, and maybe you can help fill in the gaps on what happens after you refill the mini bulk, like how, how we did it always. And I don't know if it's every locations like this, but we unloaded a lot of mini bulk, but when, when guys were picking up seed to plant, they would just pick it up in their trucks. So okay. you, you'd, you'd have like your tandem axle, triple axle, semi, whatever. And you were unloading several mini bulks at a time into a truck. You weren't saving the bag. And so it's a utility knife underneath instead of trying to, you know, just open it up. You just cut her open, let her rip. And and it goes, you weren't worried about saving the bag unless the company's like, hey, we need those bags back. Um, Oh, they don't take those back. (laughs) Right, right. I was going to say most of the time they don't take them back. Yeah. And so we would just cut them wide open. So to go through the process of pulling that little rope clip thing, untying it, letting it flow out, actually cinching that back up and refilling it, that's a... That's that's quite the process. Yeah. I mean, once you're used to it, it's whatever. But mm-hmm. that's that's a lot of extra work versus at least what I used to do. Right. So we, uh, well, so like my territory is we have a lot more corn acres usually than soybeans. So like um, that's changing now because we have a really bad rootworm problem around here. But um, but yeah, a lot of guys they either have like a box tender so. We do have boxes that we can treat into also and not have to reuse the bag. But the problem is we just don't have enough of them for mm. everybody that has a box tender. So we rebag them and then like whoever's ready for them first, then we'll dump them into a box and then, yeah, let's say throw the bag away and <laughs> go through all that. Um, some guys have wagon tenders, so like we'll, uh, we'll cut the bag and then load it into their own tender and things like that. But typically, I mean... I think I only have probably one grower I work with that has more than probably 800 acres of beans, I guess. Um, I, mm. Probably the average farm size that we work with is, I don't know, probably somewhere between six and 800 acres is covers okay. a lot of guys around. I mean, there's some with thousand acres up to 5,000 and then you've got the really big guys too that are around. But, um, but yeah, on average, our co-ops work seven, 800, nine acre growers so um and yeah the majority of that's all corn so it's kind of i don't know beans are the the cover crop around here a lot of times (laughs) yeah i like it well i was i'll tell you this when i was in retail we didn't even have those totes oh gosh it was all 50 pound bags oh because there's there there wasn't the acres yeah no i'm serious you i know you you ordered you ordered that's that's my age. Yeah, that's I was gonna say time. I wasn't gonna say it, but now I am. You're old. Yeah, you are. <laughs> Sometimes we do cut paper bags too to treat those. And if a guy wants like an odd number, like I want seventy units of beans, we'll do a forty unit tote and then cut thirty bags. And that, that's the service I provide. <laughs> so I <laughs> yeah. guess is what it is. Well, if that was a seventy unit. We'd, we'd put seventy with seventy bags of seventy <laughs> units kind of thing. <laughs> but there wasn't even. There wasn't even the seed treatment at a retail at that point. Oh, okay. So it's it's evolved tremendously. 
And uh, I think people have to appreciate that uh, a lot because it has evolved. And, uh, you know, you look at you look at soybeans. Soybeans are a crop that is seeded earlier. Uh, it seems like every year M, that part of that is being you have to, you got to treat those soybeans. That's a big thing. That's, I mean, I was watching you on Snapchat. It's like, oh, I, I absolutely enjoyed your stuff that you had about the treater. Even when you're cleaning it, going through, I'm like, oh, oh my gosh. gosh. I'm, like, I'm just reminiscing about things that I hated so much. But <laughs> <laughs> When you look like you, well, and so I wear overalls pretty much every day in the spring. So I just, I've learned that I can't afford any more pants. So I have to wear overalls. <laughs> I don't go home covered in red treatment. So, cause that stuff doesn't come out very well. No. no. Yeah. <laughs> no, that dye they put in there is uh, meant to stain things forever. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. It's, it's nice. Is there uh so you're, you're talking 750, 800 acre farms. Is that, is that generally split half and half? I guess you said there was more corn. Is yeah, it so two thirds, three quarters corn on those acres? Yeah, I would say the majority or at least, yeah, probably at least two thirds corn, typically. Some guys rotate every year, but um, we have a lot of beef cattle around here. So guys need silage or mm. um, there's dairy guys left. And so they need the silage or they'll have alfalfa mixed in the rotation too. And So the um, rotation is field corn, silage corn. Yeah. <laughs> or uh, that's kind of like our Western North Dakota guys where they go spring wheat and Durham. They're both spring wheat, but that's the rotation. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot of it. I mean, a lot of them will chop silage in the same spot every year just because it's the bunkers right there. We don't have to truck it as far. And so there's a striking similarity for a lot of our farms here too. If you, if you got a silage bunker and you're, you're raising cattle and you're chopping logistically, (laughs) that field has to be in the same spot every year. Mm -hmm. Otherwise it's impossible to get that bunker field. In a timely right. manner, without a lot of extra labor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because you as an agronomist, is there? Uh, what's your favorite crop? Um, I, I've kind of taken a liking to alfalfa, I guess, just because. Hey. Yes. Damn <laughs> right. <laughs> Ton of it, but uh, but yeah, it seems like alfalfa is really responsive to a lot of different things, and yeah, mm-hmm. like one example, um, I have a dairy that I work with. I've worked with him since I started, I guess, doing the sales thing, but um he never put any fertilizer on his hay because he's got manure. So why should we put fertilizer on? And so <laughs> one year I talked him into it. And so we spread like a hundred pounds of potash was all or something. And so the applicator went out, spread the field and he ran out, but he didn't tell anybody. So then the grower went to cut his, he chops all his hay. So he went to cut it and uh, called me and this is, he's the best guy to work with, but he, a lot of, words that come out of his mouth are swear words. So, but it's all in good fun. <laughs> but, uh, so he calls up just saying everything. He's mad. Yeah. Well, he's like, why is this hay two feet taller than the hay beside it? And then we figured out the applicator ran out of the potash where it was shorter. And so that just sold him on the potash thing. So we've spread it ever since, but, um, yeah, the same deal happened with boron. we some boron out there on places and when a guy can see the difference something makes it's pretty cool mm-hmm. so yeah so like i mean alfalfa i would say just everybody's a lot happier with their tonnages and things like that when you actually take care of stuff and it's not the forgotten crop anymore and so yeah you can have a lot better feed value and uh 
put a lot more in your bunker or your barn or whatever you're doing. So self is kind of fun that way. It is. That yeah, is a fun uh, crop, actually. There, there's a lot of things you can do to manipulate what you get out of it. Yeah. But the worst, yeah. last fall, uh, we had an armyworm infestation. And so everybody's alfalfa was cut it and then it just never grew back. And so then, yeah, we discovered the whole armyworm thing. And that was new to everybody up here. We'd never seen that before. So, yeah, we were out spraying hay like Labor Day weekend. And just it was insane. Mm. That armyworm thing can catch up on you really quick. And you probably won't see armyworm again next year. I hope not. That was a disaster. (laughs) (laughs) I'll I'll tell you what, I'll give you diamondback moths and canola if I'll take I'll take your armyworm. Okay. (laughs) I guess I'm not super familiar on that one, but you'll hate it just as as much as armyworm. (laughs) (laughs) So do you guys get alfalfa weevil in the spring on alfalfa? Um, I guess I've never seen a big issue with it, but um, I'm sure. Because that's always that's always our management issue. Uh, not necessarily eh, some years for the dry land alfalfa producers, but as you travel west into the river valleys where they're doing a lot of uh, high intensity production alfalfa. So you get into the more mountainous areas, I guess, in Montana and Wyoming. Or okay. oh, there's not mountains where they're farming there. It's just river valleys. Yeah. But you can see a mountain in the background. Um, gotcha. Alfalfa weevil is always a bigger issue for those guys. We've we battle leaf hoppers in the summer, and yeah, pretty much leaf hoppers are the big sweet. Yeah. Right? And then yeah, just new seeding stuff, whether it's diseases or uh, sometimes a lot of times it's herbicide carryover that nobody thought about. That's that's the other big issue we face. There's a lot of yeah. things you learn as an agronomist. Oh that, yeah, that that were accidents that you didn't realize are accidents, like your. Hot ash running out on hay ground or yeah. finding out that turns out someone applied a rotational herbicide that didn't work out for that rotation. Right. You don't, yeah. you don't find those things out until there's a problem. Right. Exactly. I was in, uh, my first job was in uh, Stearns County, Minnesota, and uh, I got moved up to Painesville, Minnesota, and uh, I had a bunch of dairy people. And so uh, I, here I was a North Dakota kid. Barley, Durham, sunflowers in corn, soybean, silage corn, alfalfa country. And um, so I leaned a lot on uh, some contacts I had in Menominee, Wisconsin. They were in the same company, but in a different area. And this whole alfalfa thing, I, I fell in love with alfalfa. That was, I absolutely, that was my favorite crop. It was firm ground. It was easy to walk on. It smelled so good when they cut it. You could, you could do things that you could actually change management and uh, we started an alfalfa cutting scissor program but uh between the aphids and the leaf hoppers if you sprayed dimethylate it was unbelievable the difference in hay that you had and the quality you had which translated into the uh, if you had good hay it translated into more milk and when you translated into more milk you translated into more manure and higher quality content manure it was just this whole was this whole circle of things. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, so for me, it was great to learn from people that had, they, they kind of knew, but they, you're just like, let's try this. Let's do it. And I was almost too dumb to know, but I, we did it anyway kind of thing <laughs> and it worked out and it was, it was really great. It was fun. You know, it's funny. Yes. I bring up the dimethylate thing and I'm like, God, that's, that's like old school spraying there, but. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. It's, yeah. I'm old. <laughs> right, but that but that will that is going to make a resurgence this year with 
with the revocation of uh, Copyrophos. Yeah, Lors bands. Yeah, with with no Lors band. Yeah, yeah, that's your only organophosphate that's going to be available, yeah. and so and it's 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 no Lors band. It's sorta, but it's it's not the same. Cool. But to to have high quality, uh, we did we did the same thing, uh, Gina, in situations where you spread all the stuff, but they they always spread it on stuff that was going to corn, mm-hmm. and they and they never. So we tried. Uh, at that time to do some sulfur on alfalfa and it was it didn't affect adf or ndf it just affected tons right and for a farmer that was like that's the deal yeah you know and i had and wasn't always the case but in some of the lighter ground it made a big difference and that was i think that's the fun part of being an agronomist is that taking all those experiences and i wish now going back in time i'd just start writing all these things down Yeah, it's well, like speaking of sulfur, so that's kind of a new thing we're doing in soybeans a lot now is, um, I mean, everyone's always like, oh, we need to put potash on beans. And last year I did uh, three different types of sulfur applications on beans and all of them saw like five to 10 bushel acre advantages. And whether it was putting it like with the side by side on the planter with thiosol or spraying thiosol or spreading dry MS, like all of those guys saw just huge yield bumps. And so this year, um, I think we're sending more AMS out the door than ever for, for soybeans, especially. It's just crazy. But. You know, so in, sure. a, in a weird way, it makes sense. You know, we, yeah. we deal with a different oilseed crop, canola, okay. that yep. is extremely responsive to sulfur. Gotcha. But soybeans, oilseed again, and mm-hmm. nitrogen being the biggest thing that that needs and sulfur being something that really aids in nitrogen assimilation within the plant. Right. So, so in a weird roundabout way, it, it uh it makes sense to me, even mm-hmm. though maybe I can't fully explain the reasoning. Right. <laughs> but but you know, as an agronomist, you just need to understand enough to mm-hmm. to go. Okay, yeah, I get it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's mm. uh, a lot of guys are. I don't know. With more people planting soybeans now, they're starting to play with with that, and not just focus primarily on corn. So it's kind of neat that way too. So uh, so it's corn, soybean, alfalfa, silage corn, and that's mm-hmm. that. Pretty much sums up northeastern Iowa. Pretty much, we have some guys that grow oats for seed, or like um, we do a lot of rye cover crops, and then some guys will take that to seed for next year. Um, oh, to sell okay. again for cover crop seed? Yeah. Okay. Uh, I do have a couple guys that plant wheat, uh, like winter wheat, and then they chop that for their. They use it as a cover crop, and then they chop it for their cows, and um, then seed into that. Corn yeah. Yep. Yeah. Usually corn. And then I did have a guy ask me on Monday about growing wheat for like a crop for this year. It's like, yeah, the wheat price is good. I think I should grow some. <laughs> <laughs> and where he wanted to put it, I was like, no, you shouldn't. It's a bad uh, choice. That's an optimist. <laughs> <laughs> you just got to be real, I guess. But yeah. So I don't know. It's yeah. Primarily corn beans and some alfalfa, though, is our, our main crops. And uh, I think. Yeah. I think our biggest swing acre this year is barley. Okay. Yes. Bar- barley's barley's been our biggest increase this year, and yeah, and unfortunately, not for the beer side of it. It's more <laughs> of a dog food market that's driving it. Pet food. Yep. Yep. Yeah. It's more of a pet food thing that's driving it. I was going. I was. So here's our. Uh, just so you know, Gina, our, our sulfur. Uh, most of our sulfur is put on canola. You you have to have sulfur on canola i would right. love to see canola in iowa because you would you would appreciate it so much because it's so pretty and yellow seed yeah we'll grow it and, uh, <laughs> you'll hate it 
Then that Diamondback they, Moth he talks about, yeah. you're going to learn all about it. <laughs> but there's there's some that's put on uh, spring wheat. There's some that's put on corn. Okay. That's kind of uh, pretty much you you put on some sulfur if you follow canola, which is usually a, maybe a barley or wheat or or corn. Those are probably so you got a broadleaf crop and you go to a grass crop type of thing. So I'm always I'm always curious as to, as to hear what is different or similar in different areas because uh, I think a lot of people assume a lot of things a lot of time and they don't know until you talk to people that are that are in those areas and uh, but that's kind of what uh, we have we're we're going to be uh, we're going to be down on uh, apparently corn and soybeans according to the reports yeah and we have an option of growing many crops in our state and all of those are fairly healthy on price. So yeah, some of it is expense. Corn is expensive and it's probably going to go by the wayside. So, but corn's been positive on the market. Wheat's been positive. We'll see what happens. Everything's pretty profitable this year for us. Right. Yeah. I think, uh, I mean, a guy can still make pretty decent money on corn and beans here, but the, the big question mark is just rent and how much if they have to pay rent, how much is that? And um, that's that's the big uh, profit. Um, what is a what is a rent? Just a just a <laughs> toss. I mean, you don't you just do. You can do a range. You don't have to. You know. So probably around two hundred is the low these days. <laughs> yeah. Um, and our high, I heard it was five hundred, but today I heard seven hundred for holy rent. for rent for yeah. rent. Uh, yeah, it's. I mean, there's been a lot of farm sales around lately that have been like fifteen thousand plus an acre. I mean, it's just crazy what stuff's going for around here. But holy um, crap, seven hundred dollar yes. rent. <laughs> that doesn't pencil. No, very well that no, <laughs> no, not well at all. You have to be really Unless aggressive. You have to be growing corn at that, and then right. at at the price of nitrogen right now, how does that work? It doesn't. Right. <laughs> it's crazy, mm. but that's how it goes, I guess. Well, that's, it's always, there, there's always, we have those scenarios out here. They might be different numbers, but it's the same concept. Right. It's what all is, relative to the area. Yeah. Right. <laughs> what is your rent out there? Oh, I've got stuff in my area that's anywhere from 75 to probably 140. Gotcha. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And we're... That's, and where I grew up, uh, so far east, eastern North Dakota, western Minnesota, it's probably in the one twenty-five to two twenty-five-ish range on rent, depending on what kind of ground it is, all that. But you get to where I'm at, western North Dakota, um, seventy would probably, I would say, be on the high side okay. for rent, uh, forty to seventy, kind of being kind of the ballpark there. And yeah. it's a different area. I mean, mm-hmm. when you can only produce forty bushel wheat on a piece of ground. That's uh, you, you can't afford a lot of rent. Right. <laughs> it's always interesting how things shake out for areas because there's, uh, we know there's people that have left the market that in the state of Iowa to move up to here because of that, the the difference in cost in land or rent or things like that. It's, it's just, crazy. yeah. Well, if you ever need some canola or flax or peas growing down in this state, hey, I'm I'm your person. <laughs> <laughs> Kyle can hook you up with some chickpeas and lentils, sunflowers, yep. Durham. <laughs> yeah, we're a little more diverse up north. Yeah. That's the fun thing. Which uh one of the things too, 
if you, uh, I do, one of the reasons I like to follow uh, Gina, particularly on Snapchat, is that you're uh, you're like this runner, right? I do enjoy a good run, I guess. So. Right, and some of it's relatively early in yeah. the day. <laughs> so, yeah, once uh, once spring hits, I gotta if I'm gonna get my run in, it's gotta be before work because typically when you're working till six o'clock or later, and then you have other obligations, it's just hard to get that in. So, um, so yeah, a lot of times in the spring and summer, I get up at like four thirty and then go run. So, oh my gosh, I. Uh, <laughs> I have my lighted vest and my reflective stuff on and (laughs) yeah, I I live on a gravel road. So usually I run, um, like last summer I was training for half marathon. So I was following a plan. And so like I run anywhere from like four, four to six miles sometimes like before work. And then, um, like I have to make sure I leave in time so I can get back in time to shower cook and then get ready and all that stuff before I go. So yeah. Plus it's a lot cooler in the morning here. So and the humidity is not that bad typically. So yeah. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll wake up at like uh four 25 or five 30 in the morning. Can't I'm like, I'm gonna grab my phone and see what's going on. <laughs> oh, there's, you know, she's, uh, she has her, uh, like, uh, your chartreuse yellow vest on. Right. So you can be seen. And then you have this glowing, I don't know. You, you gotta, it's it, it blinks so that yeah. you can be seen. And you're out running and it's like, ah, I got four to five miles in. I'm like, oh my gosh, <laughs> I'm just hoping to have scrambled eggs in, in about an hour. <laughs> so I'm like, wow, I know people that do this. <laughs> yeah. It's like, let's get up really early and go run really far. I'm one of those people, I guess. But yeah, I, I don't know. I, I did a half marathon last October and it, it's called the Driftless Half Marathon. So it starts in, um, part. Uh, yeah, it starts in Harper's Ferry and then you run down to Lansing. So it's very up and down, um, a lot of, a lot of hills. And so, uh, so that was a challenge, but I'm going to try to do that again this year. And then maybe another one down in Cedar Rapids, but I don't know. It's something to work for, I guess. I kind of enjoy that. No, that's super cool. <laughs> yeah. Were you a runner? Everyone that's you run, running. Did you run cross country or track in high school? Um, I actually... <laughs> hated running in high school and like (laughs) all that stuff. And then, um, I actually found, I started running a little bit in college and that really didn't start until, um, after college and I was working and decided that, uh, running was a really good stress reliever. So just a way to get out all that energy, I guess. So, so yeah, that's kind of how it started. And then I, I started doing five K's and then got kind of addicted to the whole race thing. And, then it's like, oh, let's do a 10K. Now let's do a half. And I don't know. I don't think I could do a full marathon. I don't know. That's a long time to run. Never say never. Yeah, that's it, true. It, <laughs> it's You need your competitive outlet and you have it. Yeah. And, and I think that's like the natural progression and everything. Right. You I find that I'll competitive do... outlet that kind of gives you a goal and a reason to, to do those things. Right. Well, and it's, it's not just competing with other people, but like with yourself, like the whole right. PR thing is kind of a, yep. like... I don't know the, I ran that driftless deal three years ago and last year I beat my time by like 20 minutes. So it was pretty, oh my gosh. So, yeah, I was pretty happy with that, but, uh, yeah, I'm not the fastest person out there, but I, I improved, I guess. So, That's the whole thing is improvement. Right. So it's fun. And you meet a lot of really cool people, um, at races, like the running community. It's, 
it's very small, kind of like the ag community. I mean, there's, you see a lot of the same people at all the little races and, and I actually like at our, uh, a local, like a town celebration has a 5k. And so me and a coworker ran that last year and there's this guy there and he's like, Hey, you work for a co-op, right? And I said, yeah. And he said, well, do you work with alfalfa? And I said, yeah, a little bit. <laughs> he's like, well, can you come soil sample my hay? And so I told my boss, I picked up a customer at this 5k and he said, well, you keep doing that. We'll have to pay your registration fees. Absolutely. <laughs> there we go. Registration and your beer or whatever you're drinking right. afterwards for your, your recovery, right? Right. right. Bagels, peanut butter, bananas. <laughs> but yeah, it was, it was wild. I went out to soil sample that guy's hay and get to their house and they had the driveway gated off because they have horses just roaming the yard and eating the grass which is fine but i go in and the guy's like uh sitting on a hay rack with a horse like driving this cart around and he's like jump on i'll take you out to the field so i went out to this hay field on a hay rack pulled by a horse it was the strangest <laughs> thing but <laughs> it made a good story right there there are those yeah that's <laughs> there's always a story there is always a story so you have to I think a person has to be prepared for some of that too. It's like, don't be afraid to take on some of that stuff because you never know. It, it might, you might not be a business partner, but there's probably a good story. Right. Exactly. And, and vice versa. You might, it might be a great story and then they are a business partner. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's uh running is uh it's a great thing. I, I wish I could do more of it myself, but uh it's, uh, it's always fun to see people that do it. Uh, the, the morning run is, uh, incredible to me because of the calorie uh, burn uh, and uh, just uh, to me breakfast is the absolute most important meal of the day because it gets you going and people that are out early doing stuff so I'm watching you I'm like man I'm feeling guilty here but uh, I'll go back to bed <laughs> I was gonna say you don't feel that guilty <laughs> no I don't know. this is a little bit of guilt but I'm glad somebody younger and better shape than me is doing it <laughs> oh so are there celebration beers after you do a 5k or a half marathon or a lot of them there are though uh yeah a lot of races will have sponsors of like a beer like a local brewery or something like that and then you you get your cup like i've got my motor mill race cup here today uh that i got there and um so yeah they'll give you a glass and then you fill it with whatever you want and have your drinks so yeah all sorts of good stuff usually Hmm. well it is happy hour and I'm assuming that's beer you're drinking. I don't know for sure. Well, it's actually um, so one of those wrong people that don't really watch sports or drink beer. So I actually have Jim Beam Vanilla mixed with root beer. So it's a pretty. Whoa, whoa. that's a unique one. I've. She's a runner. She's a professional. (laughs) (laughs) It's very smooth. So it's kind of like a Beam. Jim Beam Vanilla. Yeah, Jim Beam, a, vanilla, and root beer. I, I like that. I like root that beer. Is, it's also that. good with Pepsi. Like if you like vanilla Pepsi or Coke or something, it's it's good with that. But yeah. Okay. That's wow. usually my drink of choice. But if I have to drink a beer, I can drink a bush light, but it's disappointing how long it takes. Or <laughs> like an Angry Orchard or apple flavored something. It's it's all what you like, right? That's yep. right. <laughs> yeah. And if uh I remember a time when yeah i drank jim beam and i don't know if i can go back there you know <laughs> mm-hmm. but that was that was a long time ago but that's i i think for the most part uh 
you know, re- recovery on if you're racing or doing whatever, it's about just decompressing and a lot of times getting back to yeah, your training or your the place you want to be at a lot of times. So I'm glad that I I I would like to be a runner again. I can't. It's on my feet. I can I can do about four miles an hour. You do a treadmill. Like I've done a couple. I did a 5K one time. It's just about killed me. It's just it was terrible. But it is. Uh, I just got caught up in the excitement because mm-hmm. it's really fun. It's the if you're competitive, mm-hmm. it's exciting. It's uh, energetic, and uh, those things that if you weren't that way, and if you didn't run cross country in high school or college or or track and field in high school or college, it is. It is fun. There's an energy around it for sure. And I think most people aren't that way in those early stages of life. But when you get older, there are certain goals you want to do or try to attempt. And running is is just one of those places. So well, it's amazing too how like how many just there's all different ages and sizes and types of people out running. And right. I mean, there's people twice my age running like six miles and they're a lot faster than me. And that's, what's amazing to me is just how, how people, I don't know, it's how everybody's so different and they're all doing the same thing and I'll have the same goal to get to the finish line. And yeah, it's just pretty, pretty cool. I got to the finish line. I, I was ready for a beer. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was, <laughs> I, I have to know what the heck you're drinking, Jason. Cause right away when we started recording, I saw him crack open that beer and he, he took like a weird swig, like something was yes, different or something was wrong. <laughs> yeah, it was both. You're right. Correct. It, it was no Jim Beam vanilla and root beer. <laughs> no, no, I'm, I'm not a professional like Gina is. Uh, so I, I picked up uh, two beers today with my bird seed. So my day was bird seed, beer, and I went to the gym, so biceps. It was all, it was a triple B. Here in biceps. <laughs> I'm serious. That's what it was. Sounds like a book title. Yes. Yes, it does. Yeah. And then most, when people say, you know, I should write a book about that. And I always say, you know what? Why don't you write it? And I'll, I'll illustrate it. Perfect. <laughs> this, I picked up the Voodoo Ranger Juice Force IPA. Juice Force IPA, IPA, which is brand new. So I I picked this up. And the the only reason I picked it up, I've had Voodoo Ranger before, but I have not had a 9.5% Voodoo Ranger before. That's some high test stuff. Holy crap. Yeah, that is is a 2.31 BLE, bush light equivalent. But was this smooth? It's a a 30 IBU. But there are, these, these are the hops that are in it. Mosaic, it's fairly common. Mm-hmm. Chinook, Fado, never heard of that one. Galaxy, Strata, one. Strata, Lotus, wasn't Lotus before Excel? <laughs> and Sabro. Oh, there's a lot of stuff going on there. Yeah. So it was like this very fruity type of thing. That was the face I gave you. It was like I, what I anticipated and what I got was two different things. But I had two of them there. They're pretty good. So. Yeah, yeah, two and you had a six pack of Bush Light. <laughs> no, I had previous podcasts. I had a few other things, but just two of these. So, but they're they're two point three. So I really had four point six right. Bush Lights in this in this podcast, which is almost a which is four point six. That's uh, no, that's not a five k, but it's pretty close. 
close. <laughs> so I went, I went and found something a little closer to home for you. And it was actually your original suggestion. I had a couple of Toppling Goliath brews still hanging in my fridge. So nice. I thought it was only appropriate to to have the pseudo Sue that I had left in my fridge. Oh, yes. That's the, the guy I interned with his favorite. So he recommended it for you. Ah, good beer. It's good yeah. beer. <laughs> well, I, I noticed now Toppling Goliath, they have like a King Sue, a pseudo Sue, and one other one that's in our local liquor store. So nice. <laughs> yep, they... They, they're they're getting all over the place apparently now because if it's yeah. in my town in north dakota well it's got to be a lot yeah. of other places deal but it's pretty good beer and it's only one type of hop versus jason's like baker's <laughs> dozen version whatever he's got in this high test crazy stuff here seven seven hops in that thing i think we should come up with like an agronomist hop right there's like uh you gotta put a corn a soybean an alfalfa wheat a canola or something something in there to why not Right. Make it complicated. I think that would be your agronomist beer right there with seven different hops. <laughs> yeah. Just like the, the spray tank. Just keep adding stuff in. Sure. Yep. It just gotta know what your tank mixing. That's right. Don't don't agitate it too much, but just enough to make sure everything stays mixed. <laughs> yeah, I don't don't agitate me, yes. <laughs> Gina, well, where are we gonna find you? Uh are you on social media? Uh yes. So uh twitter i don't use a whole lot but i i'm gina underscore hoffman there uh tiktok is probably what i'm on the most i suppose now and that's hoffman r246 um and then i think that's the same for my instagram also hoffman r246 and then snapchat is also the same so pretty yeah easy to find again okay yeah, I, I, I like that. It makes it simple. Then it just find you across everything. <laughs> right. And as, uh, to me, it was great because I, I get to relive some of the retail things that uh, you do. That that's And, and you, you do other things too. But for me, that was uh, that's good. So I got that written down. <laughs> okay. No, and then for everyone else listening, we appreciate you listening the whole way through. And I think we're going to say cheers to this one. And we'll catch you next week on the Grimes Happy Hour. So, cheers. Cheers. Please hold for a very important message. If you like and listen to this podcast, we have a couple favors to ask. If you'd subscribe to our podcast and give us a five-star review, that's the farthest right star, we'd be extremely grateful. And if you got any topic suggestions, write us a review. Or find us on our social media platforms on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram. Oh, yeah. And one more thing. Send beer. Yes. Send beer.